Ladies and gentlemen, it's that time again. Here's the news. Fort captured by Union Army, but where's the pizza? Riots at University of Georgia, all over a bar of soap. And Carlo Tresca, last seen with Mafia in a New York hotel. At sequel, Gaindekom Wimsak. And in today's lunchbox, Stilton to be used as wallpaper in experiment by IKEA. Those are the headlines. Beef me up, Scotty. News Bang. The news for the rest of us, told by the best of us. In the time, some 1863. On this day in 1863, the American Civil War raged on like a particularly aggressive quilting bee. The Union Army, led by General Ulysses S. Grant me a moment, set their sights on Fort Hindrance, a Confederate stronghold near the Arkansas River. The stakes were higher than Robert E. Lee's blood pressure as the war waged on over slavery, specifically whether to expand it westward or keep it confined to the south like an unruly hound dog. The Confederates, led by General Robert E. Lee Me alone, defended their peculiar institution like a moonshine distillery during Prohibition. But alas, it was not to be their day. Union forces stormed the fort with cries of Union and no more slavery, while the rebels yelled, No! and you'll take our slaves when you pry them from our cold, dead hands. After hours of intense combat, the Union emerged victorious, capturing the fort and renaming it Fort Pillow Talk to reflect their newfound dominance. The Arkansas River, meanwhile, continued to flow indifferently through several states before downing a few shots of Mississippi moonshine and passing out face-first into the Gulf of Mexico. 1961 Today, in 1961, the University of Georgia was rocked by a riot of biblical proportions. Segregationists upset that two African-American students had enrolled decided to teach them a lesson in white supremacy by setting fire to their own town. The two students were later suspended for walking around while black. Eyewitnesses described how the mob chanted slogans like we want our white rights back and no more blacks on our campus before realizing they were at university. The rioters egged on by state officials overturned cars and set fire to buildings. One eyewitness, Jim Bob Johnson, recalled, It was like Gone with the Wind meets Dances with Wolves, without the class or dancing. The students' suspension was later overturned when it emerged they hadn't actually done anything wrong other than exist. Meanwhile, the organizers got off scot-free because in 1960s America, if you were white and racist enough, you could get away with murder, which many of them did. 13. 1943. Italian-American journalist and trade union activist Carlo Tresca met a grisly end today in New York City. Tresca, who was known for his opposition to the Mafia's union infiltration, had just left a meeting of the Anti-Mafia Book Club when he was gunned down by an unknown assailant. Witnesses described the assailant as a man with a gun. Tresca, who also fought against fascism and Stalinism, was shot several times before staggering into a nearby pasta restaurant where he ordered a bowl of marinara and collapsed. His last words were reportedly, I knew I should have gone for the linguine. Tresca's death sent shockwaves through the anti-mafia community, or as it's now known, the cemetery. Police are appealing for witnesses, but say they don't hold out much hope of finding anyone who saw anything. News bang, making the invisible visible and the visible invisible.
Presenting the weather report, Shakanaka Giles. A frosty morning awaits in the southeast with temperatures dipping to the level of a freezer burned sausage. Keep those mittens handy. In the Midlands, expect a smattering of snowflakes as if a baker's gone mad with icing sugar. Be prepared for a slippery stroll. Moving to the northwest, the weather will be as moody as a goth teenager with sporadic showers and sunny spells. Sizzle, uh, like. Tomorrow, the entire country is invited to participate in the great national snowball fight. Prepare your ammunition and remember, no face shots. In short, a nippy natter, icing sugar sprinkles and a moody mashup. And that's all the weather. Nineteen twenty-three. In a move that would have left the world's diplomacy in a state of upend, the year 1923 marked the inner Sion of France and Belgium into the Ruhr, a forceful campaign to wig the Weimar Republic into reparations for the World War I. The occupation of the Ruhr, a period that lasted from 1923 to 1923, was a time of significant cultural, economic and social changes worldwide, and it brought political transformation to several countries. Now to discuss the effects of this event, we're joined by our correspondent Brian Bastable. The world is about to end. The armies of France and Belgium are on the march. The skies are filled with smoke and the earth is soaked in blood. You can hear the drone of the warplanes as they hover over the war-ravaged land. This is a war that is a testament to the savagery of man. I am in the heart of the conflict in the Ruhr. This is the epicenter of the world's greatest war. As I look around, I see nothing but destruction. The German army, still reeling from the devastation of the last war, is in disarray. The sound of gunfire is everywhere. The bullets are whizzing past my head, but I'm not afraid. I am a war correspondent and I am here to tell the story of this great conflict. The soldiers are charging forward, their faces filled with determination. They are ready to fight to the death. The tanks are rolling in, crushing everything in their path. The sound of their engines is deafening. The artillery is firing, sending shells flying through the air. The ground is shaking beneath my feet. The occupation of the Ruhr has begun, but this is not just a war over reparations. This is a war over the very soul of Europe. And as the sun sets on this devastated land, I can't help but wonder, will there be anything left when the fighting is over? Brian Bastable, Newsbang, reporting from the front lines of the Ruhr. In a hiccup for French foreign intelligence, the DGSE, a dud rescue mission in Boulot-Maria, Somalia, in 2013, left a French agent in the Isle of Al-Shabaab. The after-turmoil, two French commandos, 17 militants, and eight civilians, all biting the dust. 
The DGSE, France's foreign intelligence agency, suffered a devastating blow, while Al-Shabaab, a Sunni Islamist group linked to Al-Qaeda, demonstrated its ruthless resolve. The incident marked a dark day in the Somali civil war. Now, to unveil the gory deets, Ken Shit is on the line. Greetings, degenerates! As we traverse the turbulent timeline of 2013, let's pay homage to a time when French special forces were ballsier than a trampoline full of hamsters. In Bulamara, Somalia, a godforsaken hole in the ground controlled by the bloodthirsty Al-Shabaab, our heroes launched an audacious rescue mission to save one of their own. A DGSE agent, taken captive by these savages, was facing a fate worse than death. And so, our French commandos charged headfirst into the lion's den, guns blazing and hearts pounding like war drums. But alas, fate is a cruel mistress. The mission was doomed from the start. The Al-Shabaab militants were too well entrenched, too ruthless for our boys to overcome. In the end, two brave French commandos paid the ultimate price for their bravery, their lives snuffed out like candles in a hurricane. The DGSE agent met his end as well, executed by those cowardly bastards in response to our daring rescue attempt. Their message was clear, fuck with us and you pay the price. This is Ken Shit, reminding you that no matter how noble our intentions may be, sometimes we're up against forces too powerful to overcome, but we'll never stop fighting for what's right, no matter the cost. 1946. In a stunning revelation that has sent shockwaves through the world of geopolitics, it appears that the year is, in fact, 1946. The Albanian government, under the iron-fisted leadership of Enver Hoxha, has declared that they are, indeed, a communist state. Hoxha, a man whose resume reads like a laundry list of government positions, has been named the country's prime minister, a role he will maintain until 1954. The implications of this development are staggering, and we've enlisted the expertise of our resident Albanian affairs correspondent, Hardiman Pesto, to shed light on this extraordinary situation. Martin, I'm here with a very special guest, a man who's seen it all, done it all, and has a moustache to prove it. The one and only Enver Hoksha. Enver Hoksha, welcome to Newsbang. Good evening to you, the news be with you. Enver, can you tell us a little bit about your time as Prime Minister of Albania? Of course, Hardiman. I was Prime Minister from 1944 to 1954. It was a time of great change and upheaval in Albania, but I was able to guide the country through it with a firm hand and a steady vision. Firm hand, indeed. Enver, it's been said that you were a ruthless dictator responsible for the deaths of thousands of Albanians. How do you respond to that? Martin, those are baseless accusations. I was a dedicated leader who always had the best interests of the Albanian people at heart. And where can you tell us about your famous five-year plan? Absolutely, Hardiman. The five-year plan was a comprehensive program of economic and social development that transformed Albania into a modern, industrialized nation. It's also been said that the five-year plan was a complete disaster, leading to widespread poverty and famine. How do you respond to that? Martin, those are lies spread by my enemies. The five-year plan was a great success, and it laid the foundation for Albania's future prosperity. Enver, can you tell us about your relationship with the Soviet Union? Albania was a close ally of the Soviet Union, and we received significant economic and military aid from them. It's also been said that you were a puppet of the Soviet Union. 
and that you blindly followed their orders without regard for the welfare of the Albanian people. Anything to say? More baseless accusations, I'm afraid. I was a sovereign leader who always acted in the best interests of Albania and its people. My bunkerization program was... Ah, yes. Tell us about your famous bunkerization program. The bunkerization program was a massive effort to build bunkers and other defensive structures throughout Albania in order to protect the country from potential enemies. Otherwise known as a complete waste of resources that did nothing to improve the lives of the Albanian people. Pesto, let's wrap this up. And Ver, thank you for joining us tonight. It's been a real pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, Pesto. Thank you, Martin. Yes, yes, yes. Hardiman Pesto there. Later, Idi Amin chooses the tracks of my years, but first... <laughs> News bang. Cutting through the fog of lies with the sword of truth. And now Polybeep takes us on a journey through time, from the engineering triumphs of 1986 Brisbane to the harrowing Arctic odyssey of 1914. Polly. And so, in the year of our Lord, 1986, we find ourselves in the bountiful city of Brisbane, the capital of Queensland. On this day, a marvellous engineering feat was unveiled. It was a dual carriageway crossing the Brisbane River, linking the bustling suburbs of Eagle Farm and Murari. These weren't any ordinary bridges. They were the largest pre-stressed concrete single-box bridges the world had ever seen. A marvel of their time, these two bridges made transportation a smooth ride and saved the people of Brisbane from being held captive by the hilly floodplain of the Brisbane River Valley. On the flip side, let's delve into the sombre year of 1914. It was a time of exploration and adventure, but a tragic end was in store for the ship Carluck. It was an integral part of the Canadian Arctic expedition. What was supposed to be a journey of scientific and geographic exploration ended up in tragedy. Caught in the ruthless grip of ice, the ship sank, leading to the deaths of 11 out of the 25 people on board. On this very day, we mourn the loss of the brave souls who perished while attempting to reach land or after reaching the desolate Wrangell Island. Captain Robert Bartlett, charged with the care of the remaining crew and staff, led them on a perilous march across the ice to Wrangell Island. While these events unfolded in the past, we remember them today as lessons of the power of nature and the resilience of the human spirit. Until our next time-travelling escapade, safe travels and watch out for icebergs. 1787. Calamity Prenderville, our science correspondent, takes us on a journey to 1787 where British astronomer William Herschel discovered the Uranian moons, Oberon and Titania. Well, hold on to your hats, folks, because we're about to take a trip back in time to the year of our Lord, 1787. That's right, we're going all the way back to the days when the British were still figuring out how to make a decent cup of tea. It was during this enlightened era that a certain German-born British astronomer known to his mates as William Herschel decided to take a gander at the night sky. Now, William wasn't your average stargazer. No, sir. He was a man of vision, a man of ambition, a man who looked up at the heavens and said, I reckon there's something up there I can claim as my own, and claim he did. 
On this very day in history, William discovered not one, but two Uranian moons. And not just any old moons, mind you. These were moons with a bit of flair, moons with a bit of pizzazz. He named them Oberon and Titania, after some Shakespearean characters he'd once seen in a travelling theatre troupe. Oberon and Titania? Sounds like a pair of German shepherds. But fear not, for these are no ordinary dogs. Oberon, the outermost major moon of Uranus, is the second largest moon in the Uranian system. And Titania, the largest moon of Uranus, is the eighth largest moon in the solar system. So, let's raise a glass to William Herschel, the British astronomer who proved that you don't need a time machine to discover something new. All you need is a bit of curiosity, a lot of determination, and a healthy dose of British innovation. This is Calamity Prenderville, signing off from Newsbang. Newsbang, spreading the gospel of truth one fact at a time. In a landmark moment that has sent shockwaves through the realms of tobacco and health, the US Surgeon General Luther Terry has unveiled a groundbreaking report, drawing a direct line between smoking and a litany of maladies. Lung cancer, chronic bronchitis and other illnesses now share a common thread, the seemingly innocuous act of inhaling smoke from burning tobacco. As the world grapples with the implications of this revelation, we turn to Perkins Stornoway for a deeper dive into the economic and social ramifications of this watershed moment. Perkin, the floor is yours. The stock market's mixed this morning. Dogger, slight or moderate. US Surgeon General Luther Terry, profits at £17. Humber, wind easterly, Force three or four. They're now Britain's second biggest bank. Thames, fair. Smoking involves burning tobacco and inhaling the resulting smoke. Lung cancer is a malignant tumour that starts in the lung and is often caused by smoking. Bronchitis is inflammation of the bronchi in the lungs, leading to coughing and other symptoms. Shannon, occasionally rough. Humber, wind easterly. Force 3 or 4. The landmark report by U.S. Surgeon General Luther Terry warned about the health hazards of smoking, linking it to lung cancer, chronic bronchitis, and other illnesses. Fastnet, moderate or good. On the foreign exchanges, the pound, down 0.6 of a cent. Rockall becoming variable. One German, Fennig 0.4 and a half. Sterling rising seventy-two million pounds, twenty-one three hundred and fifty-six. German bite moderate, occasionally poor. That's the business. Nineteen twenty-seven. In a move that would shape the future of cinema, Louis B. Mayer, the head of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, unveiled the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences in nineteen twenty-seven. The studio, founded in nineteen twenty-four, became a leading force in Hollywood, and is now owned by Amazon. The Academy, managed by a board of governors, aims to elevate the arts and sciences of motion pictures. To shed more light on this groundbreaking event, we turn to our reporter, Smithsonian Moss. Now at this point of the evening, we welcome listeners on FM who've just joined us. Waho, Newsbang Nation. It's your girl, Smithsonian Moss and I am here to take you on a wild ride through the annals of Hollywood history. 
Grab your popcorn and your blue water bottles because we're about to get all up in the business of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. So picture this, my friends. It's 1927, and the world is just starting to realize that movies are more than just a passing fad. They're a way of life, a form of escapism, and a way to make a quick buck. And who's leading the charge in this brave new world of cinema? None other than the legendary Louis B. Mayer, the head honcho of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer. Now, you might be thinking, Smithsonian? What the hell is an Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences? Well, my friends... It's like the Oscars, but with more pomp and circumstance. It's a place where the rich and famous gather to pat each other on the back and give out shiny gold statues to the best and brightest in the film industry. And who's the mastermind behind this glorious institution? None other than our boy Louis B. Mayer. So, on this fateful day in 1927, Louis B. Mayer decided to throw a big old banquet to announce the creation of this prestigious film organization— And let me tell you, my friends, it was a night to remember. There were stars in the sky, stars on the red carpet, and stars in the eyes of everyone who attended. But let's not forget the real reason we're all here today. To celebrate the fact that this once great movie studio is now owned by Amazon. That's right, my friends. The same company that brings you your favorite books, movies, and TV shows is now in charge of the very institution that helped shape the world of cinema as we know it today. So, what does this all mean for the future of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences? Well, my friends, only time will tell. But one thing's for sure. As long as there are movies, there will be people who love them. And there will be people who want to celebrate them in the most over-the-top, glamorous way possible. That's all for now, my friends. Keep it locked on Newsbang for more culture updates. And don't forget to tune in tomorrow for our special report on whether God exists. Until then, stay classy. Newsbang Nation. Waho. Newsbang. Making the truth the most important meal of the day. And now it's time for the final roundup of tomorrow's headlines. The Times, Led Zeppelin Rock USA. The Telegraph. Earthquake kills thousands in Haiti. The Guardian, Bayleaf crowned king in Burma. Join us tomorrow when we'll be looking at the latest development in the Iranian arms scandal, and I'll be playing the piano to raise money for dogs. Good night. Tune in next time for more artificially intelligent hilarity. Newsbang is a comedy show written and recorded by AI. All voices impersonated. Nothing here is real. Good night.